Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. You didn't take the mic from me when I handed it, when I offered it to you. We're in a fight now. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And in this episode, we're bringing you the second half of our discussion of the fifth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And listeners, be warned. If the last episode was incandescent with a fiery rage, this one's going to be, like, pretty sad. (laughs) We're, We're a little sad. But before we can begin the mourning process, let us first get our affairs in order. In the sorting chat. Okay, I have three. I know this isn't final revisions, but I have like three really important questions I need to ask you. Okay. The first one's not a question. The first one is an indictment. Of me? An accusation an of accusation. you. Okay. Because when I asked you way back in final revisions at the end of the first book, what the wizards wore under their robes, you were like, definitely not nothing. That would be insane. <laughs> uh, and I think we had the pretty clear revelation in this book that yeah. they are wearing robes. And underwear. Yeah. And that is it. Yeah. No, no, you are, you are entirely correct, and I am wallowing in my shame. Good. For anybody who missed it, the, the revelatory scene is when um, Harry is looking in the pensive and sees Snape's memory of being tormented by um, Harry's father, James, uh, who hangs him upside down from a tree on the Hogwarts grounds, leaving his dirty gray underwear exposed it's a painful scene (laughs) it's awful something that you know might redeem me i wonder if it's possible at all that there were perhaps numerous incidents over hogwarts's long history of students being hung upside down so that their robes fall and reveal their dirty underpants and i just i it's just possible that maybe before harry and company started school hogwarts introduced trousers to the uniform i mean there's no evidence that they didn't we just have evidence that when harry's father was at hogwarts trousers were not part of the uniform shaking my head very disapprovingly at marcel right now because (laughs) that is bad reading you're being a bad reader. There's no textual evidence for the sudden advent of trousers. She knows it. Second important question. Mm-hmm. When the students are talking about possible future careers, there is a description on page 579 of what qualifications you need to go into banking. And it says... Are you seeking a challenging career involving travel, adventure, and substantial danger-related treasure bonuses? Then consider a position with Gringotts Wizarding Bank. Okay. We have already gotten the impression via Bill Weasley, who also works for Gringotts, that it involves treasure collecting and international travel. 
is the wizarding economy based on like traveling around the world and finding cursed hordes of treasure and bringing them back? I believe so. I think the technical term for it is dragonomics. <laughs> And it is when you steal treasure from dragons. But we should very seriously consider the important role that um, John Maynard Keynes played in developing Keynesian dragonomics, wherein you ensure that you don't take all of the treasure. You have to ensure that there's still enough treasure, that there's uh, a healthy production of further treasure, right? That's super imperial, though, right? It's just imperialism. Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. the British traveling around the world being like, ooh, thank you for these goods. I will take them now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you know much about British imperialism, but... Um... <laughs> Not a fucking thing. <laughs> but my understanding is that this is historically accurate. <laughs> Except instead of stealing treasure from dragons... The British Empire was built on stealing treasure from literally everybody else. <laughs> Great. So the wizards just never got the memo that we had switched from literal to cultural imperialism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And cultural imperialism is a much richer, richer treasure trove. <laughs> hmm. Okay, one last important question. All right, I'm ready. In the wake of the completion of the Owls... While Harry is sort of in the middle of this panic trying to figure out how to save Sirius, he runs into Seamus and Dean, who are planning a dust till dawn end of exams celebration in the common room, and they are arguing about how many black market butterbeers they would need and whether they can get some fire whiskey. Is butterbeer alcoholic? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that it's alcoholic because earlier on in this book when they encounter Winky... Winky's like hammered off of a single butterbeer. I thought that was a joke about no. like a just being like a kid's drink. No, no. I don't think that the students are allowed to have butterbeer until their third year, right? Because they can't go to Hogsmeade and they can't go into Madame Rosmerta's or the three brooms. So it's like they're just they're allowed to drink at 13. Yeah, but they're allowed to drink like small amounts of alcohol. It's like American beer. It's like pretty much non-alcoholic beer yeah as, like four percent like non-alcoholic yeah as you have pointed it oh no we had to edit that out didn't make it into the episode so oh. for the record listeners i think that if a beer is four percent or lower it's technically non-alcoholic <laughs> and like rightly so the only person who could get drunk on like four percent beer is a house elf yeah or like literally your baby okay these were all questions but maybe we should just mention also in sorting chat before we get into some of the nitty-gritty that um this book was really sad <laughs> The first half was like, like we had a lot of things to get fired up about, but like the second half is just like painful. I wonder if it's more painful when you know what is coming than if it's your first read, because we have been paying closer attention to the larger patterns throughout the books as a whole, not just reading it for plot. Yeah, I mean, I didn't remember how this book ended at all. Oh. I didn't even remember that this was the book where Sirius died. Like oh. I remembered... I knew Sirius died in the series, but I didn't remember when. And so when it happened at the end of this book, I was like, oh, oh, no. And then there's like a bunch of the books still left that's just about being sad. Yeah. But then it was just like there's a ton of other stuff in it. Like Hagrid in this book, who is so frequently sort of this joyful presence, is just so isolated and sad and lonely in this mm -hmm. book. And... The way Hogwarts is gradually stripped 
of every form of joy. Like the whole story is just Harry having thing after thing taken away from him until he has nothing left. Like broom first, then Quidditch, then Dumbledore, then Hagrid, then McGonagall. It's just like everybody leaves in this book. Um, And some of them come back, but this book is a downer. Hey, Marcel. If I die, I'm going to leave you all my Harry Potter books. Okay. I mean, I know you already own them, but you can never have too many books. At least that's the motto of Flourish and Blots, our segment on the Harry Potter books in their physical forms. What the fuck do we have to say in this segment today? We already talked about it at length. I told like a 10 minute long story last time to prepare you for the story. (laughs) I have nothing to add. (laughs) Did I mention that the version of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix that I'm reading is hot pink? (laughs) Oh, that's really important. I suddenly remember the thing that I thought that we might briefly discuss in this section because we'd already talked about these copies of the book. And that was the fact that they just announced the very near publication of the illustrated deluxe editions of Harry Potter. Tell me more. Yeah, this fall. They're releasing a bunch of deluxe, high-quality, illustrated versions of the Harry Potter books. I think it was a CBC Books article. Drawings revealed for first Harry Potter illustrated edition. 15 pages of the first illustrated edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone have been unveiled by Bloomsbury Publishing. We're both going to have to buy these books. Oh, yeah? Why? That's a hobbit hole. What is... Why are they in... Maybe that's where Hagrid lives. Why does Hagrid live in the Shire? Maybe they accidentally put an illustration from the hobbit in here. (laughs) Listeners, we will link... We will give you this link. This is so entirely a picture of the Shire. We will give you a link to this, uh, this preview. But they are actually really, really lovely... Yeah, they're beautiful. Full color illustrations. I think they've done a pretty good job of sort of not just mimicking the, um, not just mimicking the movie. Yeah. When The Lord of the Rings came out, you know, in a trilogy, there were like $300 box sets you could get that were like so fancy and came with all of this like paratext and apparatus and just things. And I really feel like there hasn't been a comparable merchandising of the Harry Potter books. Like how many gorgeous the whole series box sets have there been so like mark it at me better harry potter publishers please yeah i will buy like any weird harry (laughs) potter shit that you send my way like why aren't you this is the same way i felt after the the world of harry potter exhibit wizarding world of harry potter exhibit at the Mm -hmm. telecenter in edmonton sure people saw this in other cities um, it was like an insane ripoff of a shitty exhibit that just showed you props from the movies. And then at the end, there was a gift shop. And even though the exhibit wasn't good, I was still really braced to spend like $100 on Harry Potter kitsch. Yeah. And then everything in that gift shop was so disappointing. Yeah, I, I'm i pretty sure that we left without spending any money, which for me is unheard of. Like, it's one of the reasons I go to museums I and shows. gift shop. Yeah. Speaking of Harry Potter editions that they have not yet come out with and have not therefore marketed to us, mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for an annotated Harry Potter. I would love a start to finish seven book series annotated collection. It doesn't necessarily have to be a scholarly edition. I'd like it to be annotated by J.K. Rowling. I want all of the additional 
paratextual information she's provided via mm-hmm. tweets and Pottermore and mm-hmm. all of that other stuff. Like, I want an edition that contains the additional information and that has allusions from the other, you know, like, yeah. if we know information from other sources, I want it all there in the books. Yeah, yeah. So that we don't have to rely on t- our Twitter followers <laughs> to tell us stuff. <laughs> Not that you guys aren't excellent erstwhile researchers. Yeah, absolutely. But I just, like, I want copies of the Harry Potter books that just have, like, 300 pages of footnotes. Like, that's what I want. Oh, God. All I want is for all of my books to have 300 pages of footnotes. <laughs> oh, love a good footnote. Yeah. Footnotes, please, not endnotes. Seriously, what the fuck is the point of endnotes? Why should you have to flip to the back of the fucking book to figure out what number 17 is for chapter three? I think it's less of a pain in the ass for the typesetters and ultimately saves paper. Which is why we're moving towards them, but they're bad. They're bad. Yeah. Footnotes over endnotes. I'm going to take this controversial position. I mean, I don't even mind endnotes if they come at the end of the chapter, but it's endnotes that are collected, like right beside the appendix at the end of the book. That like, this just—it's really obnoxious. We got off topic. No, we didn't. <laughs> Hannah, you're being a downer, and listeners don't like downers. You know what they do like. Detailed analysis of narrative perspective, which means it's time for The Boy Who Narrated, our discussion of exactly that thing. I feel like we have quite a bit to talk about in this particular segment. Sometimes it's one of our more glossed over segments, but I think it's probably the big, going to be the biggest one for this episode because this book has a lot of really important revelations that reveal to us how much Harry has not known mm-hmm. about the world that's been going on around him that really sort of recasts the series from a variety of perspectives that that have been hidden to us. I want to start off with only a very brief note that I think opens up this topic, which is right at the very beginning, our break between the two, our two discussions, what had just happened when we broke off was that Harry had overheard Mad-Eye Moody saying that he was possessed. And it's the following chapter is the one where he's like really certain that he is possessed. And eventually his friends convince him that he's being an idiot and then he's able to enjoy Christmas. Like a little Christmas special (laughs) built into the book. (laughs) Harry struggles with possession, but everything turns out okay. And he has a good Christmas. So they've cornered him finally because he's been like avoiding them and refusing to talk to his friends. They corner him finally and they're like, you're not possessed. You're an idiot. And Ginny reminds him that she knows exactly what it's like to be possessed by Lord Voldemort because she has literally been possessed by Lord Voldemort. And Harry says, oh, I forgot. And she says, that must be nice. (laughs) This book gives you a lot of reminders about how self-involved Harry is. It's really like a point in his story where he has to understand both the gravity of the situation that he's in and the seriousness, the sort of adult seriousness of this this narrative that he's now locked into, and at the same time really start meaningfully understanding that the people around him are also having their lives hugely affected by the things that are affecting him too. And that segues into the one of the main things we want to talk about, which is mm-hmm. Neville. Yes. Right? And the yeah. revelation that we have about Neville as a character in this book. Yeah, so we had talked about this a little bit earlier on about the connections that are starting to be made between Harry and Neville. And this is the book where we actually learned that this entire book series could have been about Neville Longbottom. It could mm-hmm. have been Neville Longbottom in the Order of the Phoenix. And the only reason that it isn't is because Voldemort chose 
Harry. And for no particular reason, he just went with it. Or because Harry is half half blood? Half blood. Half yes. Blood. Yeah. Yeah, whereas Neville's pure blood and Voldemort sort right. of saw something of himself in Harry. Yeah. That's an accident yeah. of birth. It's nothing essential about him. Yeah, exactly. And it's the book series as a whole does go to great lengths to tell us that like that's an arbitrary distinction to be made between wizards, right? Yeah. Whether you're pure blood or half blood or whatever. So we all obviously want to talk about Neville all the time. <laughs> oh my god. And special shout out to oh, yeah. follower Holly Dunn Design who created an absolutely beautiful book cover designed for Neville Longbottom's memoir, A Toad Called Trevor. Everybody needs to go look at it now. It's on our Twitter feed. It's incredible. Okay, so here's, you know, the big revelation is that is that Neville could have been the protagonist. And I think through that light, it's really interesting to look at what kind of protagonist Neville would have been and how his life has been different as a result of sort of that lack of attention in a variety of ways. You really see in a lot of ways Neville coming into his own in this book through his increased confidence, through their secret defense against the dark arts lessons, you know, his his showing at the Department of Mysteries, which while he is in no way as competent as Harry, he is every bit as courageous yes. as Harry. Mm-hmm. And he is also so remarkably kind, right? You get this really clear sense that Neville has lived a really, really hard life through that one scene that you see of him at the hospital with his parents and the scene where his mother hands him a chewing gum wrapper and then his grandmother tells him to throw it away, but he puts it in his pocket instead. Oh, you can't have the microphone anymore because you're too sad. I would like to throw out there the possibility while Hannah is mending her broken heart that Neville is in some ways the actual hero of this book because when he accidentally breaks the prophecy, he prevents Voldemort from ever getting it. And he does this unwittingly. Like this is this is how Neville just is as a character at this point in time. He does things by accident and often they turn out to be the best possible thing Mm -hmm. that he could have done and like harry doesn't give a shit that neville broke the prophecy and like sure he probably wants to know what it says but like he's not upset that it's broken and neville's devastated but if they had had it if they continued to carry it with them and try to hide it from the death eaters like they would have lost voldemort would have gotten the prophecy and like the world would have ended much sooner than it does oh oops (gasps) just kidding (laughs) anyway Neville. I'm going to be sad again. So right after Sirius dies. So so I think it's really important to remember that at this point, Neville has no idea. Neville, like, obviously knows who Sirius Black is because he reads the Wizarding News. So as far as he's aware, Sirius Black is like a psychopathic killer. He has no reason to believe otherwise. Everything has been telling him that this is true. And he's all he's seen is Sirius Black show up. He hasn't exchanged a word with him, but he observes harry's reaction to sirius's death and then he comes up to him afterwards and says harry i'm really sorry was that man with sirius black a friend of yours oh it's so it's just harry is for all of his various qualities incredibly self-involved and incredibly bad at reading the people around him he has a very poorly developed theory of mind one might say (laughs) he's very bad at understanding that the people around him have 
rich internal lives. Mm-hmm. And he makes a lot of really bad mistakes as a result of failing to understand that. You know, for example, we have the revelation about his parents in this book, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But his total shock that his parents were like people and not, you know, heroes. I mean, it just it's just another example of how bad he is at understanding the complexity of other humans. And Neville is so obviously good at it because he has observed the situation and he has correctly intuited what's going on and immediately reacts in this really empathetic way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are really heroic about Neville in this book. There's a lot of really beautiful qualities about him as a character. And qualities that I think is really interesting that you start to get to see them only through the process of starting to watch Harry become the kind of person who can actually recognize and understand the people around him which is a process he goes through with luna lovegood too right yes the book where he goes from completely dismissing her Mm -hmm. as a character to actually being comforted by her yeah and at the at the end of the book when he offers to help her find the things that literally everybody has stolen from her which is also devastating and he's like do you want a hand tracking down your things and she's like no they'll turn up they always do yeah I mean, that moment where he suddenly, suddenly occurs to him that if she can also see Thestrals, it means that she too has experienced loss. Because he doesn't make that connection right away, right? He's sort of like, oh, she sees these things and I see these things. That means I'm crazy. And even when, even when he learns why you can see Thestrals, it's only later at that, it's that moment at the end, isn't it? When he's like, oh, hey, Mm -hmm. oh, so if you can see Thestrals, you've, like, experienced a tragic loss. And yeah. she's like, yeah, my mom. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, other people's parents have also died. God. Sorry, Harry. Harry. And this is part of, like, across the board, he's learning to see other people and, as a result, learning to see himself a bit more clearly, you know, which is part of a larger narrative of maturation, And the revelation about his parents is part of that. So he goes into the pensieve and he sees that his father was actually like a total dick, as was Sirius. And that Lupin, while not actively behaving as a bully, just sat there and let it happen. Mm -hmm. That his mother really did not like his father. And essentially that they were teenagers. Because if we were all going to be held responsible forever for the times that we were dicks as teenagers, then we would all be in life prison. And Snape needs to fucking get over it. I was bullied as a teenager. I recognize that those people were also children. It sucks. Cultures of bullying are a problem. We should do everything that we can to prevent it. But you can't hold teenagers responsible for bad decisions that they make. You really can't. Certainly Certainly not the teenage children of the adults who were once teenagers who bullied you like that's nonsense yeah i have i have one question about that though which isn't part of final revisions it's like a genuine Mm -hmm. it's a genuine discussion question Mm -hmm. when harry goes to talk to lupin and sirius about the way that he sees his father behaving and they admit to being embarrassed and and ashamed rightly so they should because that is they were terrible I can't remember which of them it is. I think it's Lupin points out that, you know, Severus Snape and James Potter 
had a relationship that was very similar to um, Harry and Draco Malfoy. But I'm not convinced by this because in the relationship between Snape and James Potter, Snape, as we as we learn, is an abused child who comes from a poor house and he's being bullied and tormented by some like rich pureblood kid. And it's the exact opposite with Harry and Malfoy. So yeah. like, I don't know what to do with that information. I don't feel satisfied by their like, oh, it's the same with you and Malfoy, like teenagers be teenagers, you know? And I don't think Harry's entirely satisfied by that either, right? They justify mm-hmm. it to him and he's sort of like, like they say like, oh, Harry, we were 15. And he's like, yeah, I'm 15. Yeah. But I think nonetheless, I mean, he's not pleased with that behavior. And that's one of those revelations that you have that like sometimes your parents weren't great. And it's really hard when you have a parent who you loved who's dead yeah. to not deify them right. and to not try to remember them as like people who were perfect. But people aren't perfect and your parents aren't perfect. They're also humans. And I think that's really fundamental to growing up. We grow up at different rates, I think, depending on how easy it or hard it is to deify our parents. Mm -hmm. Some of us never get the privilege of having parents who you can deify. And maybe you do some really early maturing as a result. And other people get to do that way later because their parents kept up that facade. But eventually we all figure out that our parents are are flawed humans and have to go through the difficulty of dealing with that. Cause it is hard. Yeah. It really is. And I, and I respect that. And I also, I'm also really interested in the way that that starts to cause Harry to step outside his understanding of himself as a sort of flawless protagonist and start to look a little more closely at, at his own potential bullying behavior. And he doesn't, think oh maybe i'm also bullying draco malfoy but he thinks maybe like i mean he doesn't think it overtly but you see him saying to himself like maybe i've been bullying neville maybe i've been bullying luna maybe even if i'm not directly participating in the abuse against these students Mm -hmm. maybe i'm consenting to it and having sort of seen what that looks like from the outside he's grossed out by it and he doesn't want to participate and there's that moment where He's watching Ron and Ron. They're sitting at the same place by the lake that he saw his father sitting and Ron sort of doing the thing with his hair to make it look like he's just gotten off the broom. And he just, Harry has this moment where he's like, oh my God, we are dicks. Like he's this <laughs> moment where he sort of like looks at himself from the outside and is like, oh God, no. And it's, a, you know, I think that's like such an important moment. So we've been talking a lot about Harry growing up and this, leads to my argument and thought about genre, which is that of all of the books in the series, we can most clearly read this novel as a Bildungsroman because we see very overtly Harry transitioning from a boy to a man. And so we didn't really talk about this in the last episode, but in that first chapter, when Vernon Dursley is yelling at Harry for just being present it's nothing has even happened yet and vernon is just yelling at harry vernon uses the word boy and petunia like multiple times i think that between the two of them they call harry boy like seven times on a single page it's really noticeable and it's really clearly them putting harry in his place 
And so Hannah is currently tracking down the section, probably like four fifths of the way through the book, where one of the centaurs actually refers to Harry. What is it? It says, and they are not so young. He is nearing manhood, this one. And then we get to the end of the novel and Dumbledore does this like retrospective of all of Harry's like all the novels he goes through the endings of the last four novels and is like you were so young you were barely older than young you were getting older and you were definitely old enough but like how could I you'd been through so much but like now now is the time for me to tell you about your mortality now is the time for you to come to terms with the fact that son you're gonna die (laughs) and you may have to kill someone You know you're a man when an old white man with a beard tells you you're going to have to murder someone. And then after that, we also have Harry recognizing himself as, and I quote, a marked man. So Harry self-identifies as a man. And then as Hannah very, very astutely pointed out, the novel actually ends with Harry leading the way out of the train station and and the Dursleys following behind him. Mm-hmm. So we've gone like a full shift mm-hmm. from boy to man yeah. in this single book. And he's such an angry teenager at the beginning. And then by the end, he's really sort of come to terms with like a lot of the things that adulthood entails. A lot of the sort of losses involved in adulthood and the responsibilities involved And some of that has left him a little hardened. And I think some of that has made him a lot more compassionate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this book is really explicitly staging itself as a building's roman Mm -hmm. in that way. And Sirius's death is one of the the key turning points in that sense. I mean, it's such a brutal scene. And then even worse are the following scenes. Like, I found the, the scene of him with Dumbledore... Honest got a little dry because he resummarizes the last four books. But then there's a subsequent long scene where Harry convinces himself that there's going to be a way that he can see Sirius again. And I found that scene absolutely excruciating. We were talking about how Sirius's death comes quite out of the blue, mm-hmm. right? So he's like, he's dueling with Bellatrix. And then he's just taunted her and said, like, you're going to have to do better than that. And then she hits him square in the chest with a, I assume, a Vata Kedavra. Yeah. Like, it just says a red bolt of light. And then he's gone. And then it knocks him through this doorway. And we were talking about the fact that both of us, when we read this book originally, hadn't realized that he was already dead when he got knocked through that doorway. Mm-hmm. And had assumed that he had gotten sort of pushed through into another reality or something and i spent the rest of the books waiting for him to come back Mm -hmm. waiting for that like i assumed that that was going to be a later book revelation that sirius was going to return from wherever he'd been sent for the duration of the series being pretty sure that like all of the stuff where people say he's dead and it gets repeated over and over again that like mm -mm. no like everybody's mistaken sirius is going to come back there's going to be some mystery that will be solved later on yep and that's Having just reread it, and again, this is only the second time I've ever read this book, but rereading it now, it's completely obvious to me that he's dead already before he he goes through that doorway. And that Lupin is totally aware of that, right? And Lupin is trying to say to Harry, like, he can't come back. He's dead. And that Harry can't hear that. Mm -hmm. And that you see Harry unable to hear that for much of the rest of the book, 
right up until he has that conversation with Luna and she explains to him what was on the other side of that doorway, what Harry didn't understand, which is that that doorway was death Mm -hmm. and that people pass through it and they're gone and they're gone in a way that is fundamentally more permanent than what Harry had been ready to hear. But also because he has just had the revelation that he too is mortal. Like it's also fundamentally not permanent because Mm -hmm. you too will die. And that's again, a pretty fucking intense adult revelation. All of these things, the permanence of loss, the reality of your own mortality. Like there's something about that scene, about the way that she's explaining to him that those people are still there. I actually can't put my finger on what it is about that scene that like gets me so intensely. I wonder if it has to do with the fact that what Luna's saying is something that we say in various ways all the time, which is that the, oh my God, I think I was about to accidentally quote Dumbledore, which is really embarrassing. Well, that like the people that we love are never really gone, right? Like they're always with us and you can hear them. You can like hear the voices of these people who are dear to you and who are no longer with you. And what the book has done is the book has manifested that quite literally in that when you're close to the curtain, you can hear... God, I'm getting choked up. When you're close to the curtain, you can you can hear these voices. And if we think of the curtain as being like symbolic for being close to a place when you need the comfort of that lost yeah. loved one, that's when you hear them. Oh, God. I can- oh, my. Oh, fuck. I just spent the day at a suicide awareness fundraiser. And I also just want to note how alluring that doorway was. Only to some of them, mm-hmm. right? Ron and Hermione had no interest in that doorway at all. Yeah. But Harry and Luna and Neville all found themselves really drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And I also think that that's interesting because there's a comfort in that and then there's a danger in that. Mm-hmm. That when you've lost somebody and then you find yourself sort of in that way, drawn towards the idea of being with them again, mm-hmm. that can both be a support and you see moments in this book in which it's a support right when he thinks when he's being possessed by Voldemort and he thinks well at least if I die right now I'll I'll get to see Sirius again and that's actually that intense feeling of love is the thing that keeps Voldemort from from taking him over but that also has this really dangerous death drive to it right in that Mm -hmm. desire to be with the person that you've lost there is that danger just thinking forward to the book Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. One of the things I really admire about this series is that even though all of the tropes of fantasy would say that at least one of these dead mentor figures is surely going to return, they never do. Well, like, Dumbledore kind of comes back. No, he doesn't. He doesn't come back to life. But Harry... Like, fucking hangs out with him in a train station for an hour. (laughs) Yeah, but he's still, like, full-on dead. Yeah. And he makes it clear that this is Harry's party that he's at. It's not... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, when people die, they die. Yeah. Like, and magic doesn't stop that. Yeah. Like, that death is still just a thing that you have to deal with. Okay. I'm ready to cheer up. Go, girl. And none too soon, because it's time for Potions Class, our segment on pedagogy at Hogwarts. And we all know, 
There's no crying in pedagogy. There's crying? There's no crying in pedagogy. So this is the first time that I've read the series as a grad student, I think. And it became quite clear to me how much the OWL exams, the ordinary wizarding level exams, are exactly like grad school. You're stressed out for the entire year the way that these students are in years five and seven. We get that message very clearly. And they like resort to all kinds of like black market potions and black market, whatever the magical word for drugs is. But they're basically like exchanging like uppers, like various. Yeah, like various forms of uppers and like whatever those, (laughs) what the fuck are the study drugs called? I can't even remember anymore. There's one that starts with a D, dexedrin and... Riddle in. Yeah. The intensity with which these students are just being tormented by the prospect of their own failure. And the idea that at the age of 15, they have to choose their career paths and then achieve in a certain way in order to not fail out of their career paths. Like, here's a story about 15-year-old Hannah. She didn't want to go to university. (laughs) And when I finished high school, I did not finish high school with enough of the right kind of credits to go to university, and then I left school for two years. I am a like a professor now, so <laughs> teenagers shouldn't have to make life-changing choices. And for any of you listeners out there who are not grad students but are thinking about grad school, I want you to know that like this book perfectly encapsulates what it's like to be a master's student. Like it's really important that you know that the scene when Ernie McMillan is like badgering people about how much they've studied and like how many like potions they've managed to mix or like whatever the hell it is where he's like how much how much how many hours of revision have you done like that's exactly what grad school is like you will have that conversation with a hundred people who will ask you how many hours you spent reading and then will immediately proceed to tell you how they spent twice as many hours as that reading and haven't slept in three weeks Mm -hmm. and drink 200 cups of coffee a day and don't eat food anymore and haven't done laundry like since they were eight and it's the worst it's like this disgusting culture of of misery one-upsmanship also great grad (laughs) no no master's degrees are excruciating like i cried every day during my master's degree me too i cried so much during my master's degree it's trial by fire they're meant to be miserable yeah but just just so you know, if you are also thinking of doing a PhD, like your first year of a PhD is not even remotely as, as torturous as your first year as an MA student. PhDs are way better than masters. Yeah. You'll make friends in your masters, though. That's nice. Just a couple of other notes. One, McGonagall makes a beautiful showing in this book. Okay. I love her ire in the face of Umbridge's increase in takeover of Hogwarts. I love her explicit refusal of Umbridge's authority. I love the scene where um, one of the examiners says that um, you would never be able to stun McGonagall face to face in the light, that the only reason they could get her is because it was dark out. Like, I love those little revelations of how fucking badass McGonagall is and that she took four stuns straight to the chest and lived to tell because, man, that lady is badass. But I also love how the advent of a really terrible workplace situation at Hogwarts causes the rest of the teachers to really band together. Mm -hmm. And you get 
the kind of image that you often don't get, probably because you're getting the story told from the perspective of a, a child, but of how these these teachers are friends and respect to each other. And that really, I mean, that comes out in the way that they all agree to not help Umbridge and the way that they all sort of have these shared tactics of nonviolent resistance to her rule at the school. But the best scene in my mind, my favorite scene is the scene where Trelawney is being publicly shamed by Umbridge and all of the other professors gather around her and make this public show of support for her. And you know that they don't particularly like her as a teacher and they don't have a lot of respect for what she does, but she is their peer Mm -hmm. and they will not allow their peer to be shamed in that way. Working in an educational institution where a lot of the time top-down administrative choices happen that make the work environment relatively toxic for the people trying to do this job, you sometimes see people, or the temptation at least, Mm -hmm. for people to turn against each other, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Our our friend Nick Van Orden says that um, you always shit downhill. Which I think is a great, a great turn of phrase. You can't shit uphill. Yeah, he's a classy guy. But I just really love, I love the way that sort of in this situation, you see the Hogwarts teachers really Mm -hmm. banding together and taking each other's side. And I think that's really lovely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about Dumbledore. Yeah. Okay. So we have talked about Harry and having PTSD in the last episode. And Hannah talked about the lack of grief counseling as being like a major problem at Hogwarts in the minisode. And this is the first instance that we get of Dumbledore as a professor. And he's not being a professor so much as being a grief counselor, right? So he sort of sits Harry down at the end. He lets Harry, like, break all of his shit. He reacts calmly and almost infuriatingly calmly throughout the whole thing. But, like, does all of the work that Harry really needed at the end of book four... (laughs) So, like, the the time and the explanation and the unwavering support that Dumbledore provides to Harry during that scene, however imperfect, is exactly what Harry needed mm-hmm. when Cedric Diggory died um, and didn't get. Yeah, and you finally get it from Dumbledore. And alongside that, you get from Dumbledore a very clear admission that he has done a bad job yeah. of being the kind of mentor and teacher that Harry needed up until now because he was too scared to really do what was necessary. Um, And this is a scene where Dumbledore makes amends both by fully verbally acknowledging the extent of Harry's pain and suffering for the past five years, which has not been fully acknowledged and which, as we were talking about in terms of gaslighting in the last episode, it can be incredibly traumatic to not have what is happening to you fully acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something incredibly valid about Dumbledore going back and sort of retelling Harry's story to him and saying like, your life has been hard. Mm -hmm. And like, that's for anybody, if anybody out there has ever gone to counseling, talking to somebody about your life and having them say to you, how your life has been hard is the most validating thing in the world. Even if your life, you know, comparatively in the grand scheme of things has not been the hardest it's still just having your pain acknowledged is is pretty important and so i think that that is really incredible and i also think that it's really interesting that it's part of this larger reframing of dumbledore where he sort of steps forward and says overtly like i have been 
behind the scenes manipulating every aspect of your life for the past five years and I did a bad job. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that I was in a position where I could perfectly control everything and I was wrong. And that is such a vital part of this larger narrative of Harry growing up mm-hmm. because the God figure who was supposed to have perfect control over everything has like stepped out of that position and said, I'm a person, I'm a very powerful person, but I'm a person nonetheless. And I made a series of decisions and here's how I made them. And here's how they did not turn out well. And they resulted in some pretty serious consequences. I think that's remarkable. And I think it's remarkable paired with another revelation we have about Dumbledore, which is that in the first four books, Dumbledore's power is linked to his position. That is to say, you almost never see him do anything, Mm -hmm. but you are aware that he is the headmaster and that he is the head of the Wizengamot and various other important titles. And so you just have this sense that he is an important man because he has a great deal of institutional power attached to him. And in this book, every form of his institutional power is stripped from him. And you get finally a scene where you see Dumbledore and Voldemort face each other and you recognize that Dumbledore's titles are a side effect of his power. Mm-hmm. His power is not a side effect of his titles. Mm-hmm. That he is, in fact, this enormously powerful force. And so to have that revelation where you finally get to see the extent of Dumbledore's power paired with simultaneously getting to see the extent of Dumbledore's fallibility and his flaws as a human is also part of the larger raising of the stakes Mm -hmm. at the end of this book and how nobody involved in this war is perfect. Okay, I know you were starting to feel better, but that's all about to change because you are an adult woman now and we are headed into the Forbidden Forest, where we'll encounter race, gender violence, colonialism, and a bunch of rapey fucking centaurs. I'm going to start very briefly. Um, I would just like to, to make a note about the giants. We didn't end up having time to talk about the giants in the last episode. And I find the representation of the giants, the monstrous otherness of the giants, very interesting in this book as a whole, as part of the larger way that the books are starting to reveal the extent of the non-humanness in non-human others in the magical world, right? You know, you started to see it with the house elves, but now you get the giants, right? And it's Mm -hmm. this real, like, there are others in this world who are so fundamentally not like us. And when we meet Grop for the first time, Hagrid's little (laughs) half-brother, Uh, younger half-brother he's not little he's like twice the size of Hagrid it says in the book that Hagrid looks like a human just way bigger Mm -hmm. but Grop looks fundamentally non-human and you've realized that like part of what's made Hagrid a really easily incorporable other you know for most of the sort of liberal members of the wizarding world is that he might be a little bit monstrous but he is mostly identifiable as human Mm -hmm. whereas grop is like on the other side of that divide right where he's so clearly other in a way that just terrifies everybody Mm -hmm. which makes 
the eventual revelation that he is also able to, to some degree, form intimate relationships, I think really, really important, right? Because, and this is part of a larger question I have about non-humans in the wizarding world here. So liberal humanism is, it's based on the idea that if we're all, if our differences are all basically cosmetic and underneath the skin, we're all essentially the same. It should be really easy for us all to unite around a shared set of values. And these books seem to fundamentally refuse that idea that everybody is the same and wants the same thing and has the same values under their skin. That when other non-human creatures are other, they are actually other. They want different things. Mm -hmm. They understand the world differently. Um, they are not necessarily amenable to the desires of the wizarding world. And that's something that you increasingly see sort of needs to be respected and that if you're going to have a relationship that works across those borders of real meaningful difference, it needs to be based on mutual respect, not on a sort of violent attempt to incorporate others into your own worldview, which is why Dumbledore advocates for respect for house elves mm -hmm. and says that Sirius's great mistake was not respecting creature, right? Mm -hmm. Treating him as something less than him, treating him with disdain, mm -hmm. because disdain and thoughtlessness can be so, so violent. And that that is fundamentally different from Hermione's shitty politics. And then compare that to sort of the centaurs who Harry and Hermione actually get in a confrontation with them. They're not compassionate, nice, amenable, like they are not interested in being part of the wizard world. Mm -hmm. They really understand themselves as other and want to keep themselves separate from it. And even Ferenz, who is the one who lets himself become part of the wizarding world, is still very like holding himself outside mm -hmm. of it, being, you know, saying I am other. And so I think that there's that there's something like the core of an interesting ethics being worked out here in relation to difference, which is that you cannot expect to overcome meaningful borders of difference through the assumption that we are all the same under the skin. Mm -hmm. That instead it involves a kind of fundamental respect, not despite, but for difference, and a kind of really fundamental labor, right? The labor that you see Hagrid doing, that you see Dumbledore calling for, which is like, it might be incredibly uncomfortable, Right? You might have to live with a house elf-like creature. You might have to work through the difficulties of a relationship with a giant like Grop. But there's a sort of benefit in working through that relationship. Not that Hagrid is doing a good model of being like ethical because he definitely just enslaved his brother. So, I think the, the key to what it is that you're pointing out is that the liberal humanist assumption that deep down we're all the same is that deep down everyone is the same as humans, right? Like that's, it's the fundamental hubris and, of humanity. And deep down everybody the same as like white male humans. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, I want to talk about an idea that our friend and self-proclaimed number one fan, Sylvie Vigneux has posed. Um, the way that the centaurs are uh, characterized in this novel is through tropes of indigeneity. And 
there are definitely ways in which that is extremely clear. So the fact that when Umbridge is confronting them and is reminding them that they are only allowed in the portion of the forest that the Ministry of Magic has designated for them. And so so for those of us living in settler colonial states like Canada, the US, Australia, and New Zealand, that has a very clear resonance to us in the way that like Indian reservations have functioned, at least here in North America. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the centaurs use bows and arrows, the fact that Ferenz starts his uh, divination classes by burning sage and other herbs. The emphasis on their sort of ancient wisdom, mm-hmm. the fact that they're all very sort of stony faced, yes. like a lot of this is playing on sort of, you know, racialized tropes of the wise Native American, mm-hmm. the fact that they are all men right which is a sort of again the sort of image you get from cowboy and indian films of what indigenous subjects look like the fact that they're all men and warriors but also very wise Mm -hmm. and fundamentally connected to nature like there's a ton for those of you who who are not trained in reading for these particular tropes take our word for it the centaurs are heavy-handedly coded as indigenous Mm -hmm. So then, of course, there's one like major disturbing problem, which is that centaurs as mythical characters are also a rape-based society. And so when they carry Umbridge off to punish her, it is implicit that they're punishing her through sexual violence. But the thing that makes this especially problematic is that there's a long, historically inaccurate and deeply racist and problematic narrative history of indigenous men to be thieves who steal white women and carry them off and rape them and make them bear their children. This is like a really old and disturbing trope. It's even in, it's in fucking Peter Pan. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like captive narratives, which is the genre of stories about white women getting stolen by indigenous people and then like being forced to, to marry an indigenous man and then having children and then her struggle over what her culture is. Like it's a whole genre. And I need to note, in case there's any um, devil's advocates listening to this, and I know that all of our listeners are lovely, so nobody's going to be a dick, but we're not saying that that didn't ever happen, yeah. right? Like, there's, there is a long and complicated history of the relation between indigenous people and colonizers on this continent um, that certainly involved a history of sometimes people getting kidnapped. Like, it happened. What we're looking at is the way that that then gets... In- incorporated into a particular narrative trope that's held to be representative of a whole people and the way that one particular kind of event gets picked up as a common key and important event in a way that others don't right so like why is it that that story of white women getting taken by indigenous men is the story that gets fixated upon that's because white supremacy often focuses around the vulnerability of white women to racialized men, which is part of a larger anxiety over the um, the way that the purity of the white race will be tainted by the possibility of our clean, clean white women getting impregnated by non-white men. So it's part of a sort of white supremacist logic that is getting played out. In this, in this image of a white woman getting forcefully carried off into the wilderness by a group of centaurs. Yeah. Yeah. And 
the children very obviously don't understand what's happening because they think it's really funny to make jokes at the end about how Umbridge is still like disturbed by the sound of horse hooves. And for those of us who read between the lines and understand that she's been carried off by a group of sexual predators, that's fucking disgusting. Like that's horrendous that they like make a joke about how scared she is and how she is now suffering from like post-traumatic stress after having been like sexually assaulted for who even knows how long and it, it the whole thing is is vile yeah it actually really smacks of like corrective rape right yeah. which is like she was a bad woman yeah. and she got what was coming to her and like umbridge was a monster but like that's super fucking not okay well and you know what we never actually really talked about her as a spinster yeah. before but if we think about umbridge as a spinster character who she definitely is like she fawns all over fudge but it's like adoration. It's not. She's not in love with with Cornelius Fudge. The cats and the the cats and the the fluffy pink sweaters. Like she's coded as a spinster. Yeah, and spinsters are historically lesbians. But we didn't have a word for lesbians because we dare not speak of such. Well, lesbians or asexual. Good point. And in both cases, corrective rape is like what you do to women who do not behave like appropriate women, which is that they become wives and mothers. I would actually really like to get some feedback from you guys because we both find this whole part of the book really distressing and in a lot of ways sort of hard to read in terms of what is going on with Umbridge, what is going on with the centaurs, why is that how this ends? Why is that Umbridge's end that she is carried off into the woods by these pseudo-Indigenous characters to be correctively raped so that she is no longer a threat. Uh, That is all extremely disturbing on multiple levels. And I'm not quite sure how to fit it into the rest of the book in the sense that I'm not sure if it's the book ultimately becoming complicit with a lot of really troubling Mm -hmm. tropes in the same way that we've seen these books often slide into in various contexts. And speaking of which, do, 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 did you watch? So Anthony Goldstein is in the latter half of the book as well. I think twice. Um, Yeah. And so at the end, he has that triumphant moment where he, along with his fellow members of Dumbledore's army collectively stun Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, and turn them into a bunch of slugs. Yep. The end. This has been Jew Watch. Wait. I've finally figured it out. I know what can make me happy again. Do you know what it is? It's Granger Danger! I want to start this off with another sort of brief aside, but it's just this moment that really delighted me. So you've been seeing Ginny and Hermione's friendship growing as the series carries on since Ginny arrived at the school. And it's things that you don't actually get that much text of because Harry is not interested in telling you (laughs) about a female friendship. And so all you know is that like usually when they're all together, Ginny and Hermione sort of hanging out together. But you get little moments where it becomes clear to you that they've actually really been talking to each other and really getting to know each other. And my favorite of those moments is when 
the Weasleys are commenting on how strange it is that Ginny is really good at Quidditch, considering they never let her play. And Hermione says, oh yeah, no, she's been stealing your brooms for years and practicing without you knowing. And it's like, Hermione just knows this thing about Ginny that none of Ginny's brothers know, because none of Ginny's brothers have been taking her seriously, whereas Hermione and Ginny obviously have this friendship where they tell each other stuff and take each other seriously as a couple of super rad young women. And I find that really exciting. So like, what's up here? Oh yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. So right at the end in the scene where they've all gathered in the, um, the hospital wing because Ron and Hermione are still quite badly injured is describing all of their seating arrangements and it says Ginny whose ankle had been mended in a trice by Madame Pomfrey was curled up at the foot of Hermione's bed like a cat yeah like a cat <laughs> I mean there's a great deal of queerness in a lot of young women's relationships yeah yeah, yeah yeah I just don't understand why she's like a kitty instead of like a person you've never curled up at the foot of somebody's bed not not as a 14 year old girl okay I was about to say, we can try it later if you want. So the other thing we need to talk about with Hermione is this, like, incredibly important role that she plays at the end of this book, which is that, like, she's been saying to Harry through the whole fucking book, like, if Dumbledore said your Occlumency lessons were important, you need to take them. Like, you need to listen to him and take these lessons. And everybody's like, oh, Hermione, such a nag. And then when he has the dream about Sirius being tortured, Hermione's like, Hey, remember how Dumbledore said to not believe the things you saw because Voldemort was getting in your head and that you needed to take occlumency lessons? This is why you shouldn't believe this dream. And Harry responds with so much rage that Hermione actually gets frightened Mm -hmm. and he essentially bullies her into helping him in this incredibly ill-advised plan when she was... 100% right. This is like a callback to when Hermione cautions against continuing with Dumbledore's army because Sirius Black thinks it's a good idea because Sirius is reckless. And in the same way, she's pointing out Harry's own recklessness, his own like refusal to think things through, his knee-jerk reactions and panicking and, and his hero complex. She like nails it with his hero complex. It's connected to what we were talking about last episode with what a good reader Hermione is, because she says, like, don't you think that maybe you have this thing with saving people? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, well, remember last book when you insisted on trying to save everybody during the Triwizard Tournament and it was completely unnecessary, like that you don't, that you have this obsession with this idea that you are the hero Mm -hmm. that causes you to make really bad decisions. And he's so fundamentally unable to hear that and so fundamentally unable to like listen to her and respect her as a smart person who is good at reading these situations. Um, Like he just can't hear it, but we hear it and we see that she was a hundred percent right. And it doesn't really come up again in the sense of like, Oh, Hey, hey, did Hermione nail that or did Hermione nail that? Like, obviously, Harry has this intense guilt. He recognizes he's made a bad choice. But, like, there's no moment where he's like, wow, I should learn to listen to Hermione more. Even when he gives that cryptic message to Snape about Sirius in front of Umbridge and is unable to trust that Snape has understood him and is 
gonna go check it out yeah right and like i know that he i know that he doesn't have trust in snape i know but it's just another example of his like complete inability to read the situation like what was he expecting snape to do go wink (laughs) (laughs) like there was nothing that snape could have done except be like i have no idea what he's talking about and then strut out of the room Hermione is so not just book smart, right? Like you think back to the first book where she says that like all she has is books and cleverness, right? It's not books and cleverness. She is she takes her close reading skills and applies them to the real world and like interprets situations really well. And it's so interesting the way that's built into the narrative but simultaneously built into it is the way that people don't listen to her. And now, dear listeners, before we can let you go, you must complete some final revisions. I'm going to ask Hannah some questions, and she has to answer them, and you have to listen. Okay. So this is an important question. Are we to believe, based on this series of books, that memories are objective? Not necessarily. The Pensieve exists as an external technology because it removes your memories from your mind in a way that is non-identical to your own capacity for recall. And so I think that what it's doing is differentiating between your capacity for recall and the event itself, right? And what's really interesting about being present in the Pensieve is that it becomes clear that what those memories have recorded is just a sum total of sensory input, not... um the meaning of the event in any way so that when you are in somebody else's memory, you can look at things they didn't look at and focus on things they didn't focus on. And as long as it was sort of within the larger sensory input, it's there recorded somewhere in the brain. And so it's possible for Harry to enter into Snape's memory and to see things that Snape himself did not notice Mm -hmm. and to interpret that differently so that the set of experiences that informed Snape's memory are there recorded somewhere in the brain. But what those mean to Snape are deeply personal and deeply different from what they would mean to Harry. And there's something about the way that memories can be externalized, but still have to be experienced by people that you can take it out of your head and put it in the pensive, but somebody still has to look at it. And so they're still deeply subjective at the level of experience. I'm only going to ask you one other question. And the other question is, so you remember in the last episode where we were talking about who the people were who were flocking to Umbridge. So your theory was that the students who were flocking to be part of the inquisitorial squad were the children of Fudge's political allies. Mm And I really wanted to talk about one example Mm -hmm. of somebody who was not a Slytherin, Mm -hmm. but couldn't because we weren't there yet. 
that's what I was going to ask you. Did you did you notice who it was? I did not. I did not notice. Isn't oh, of course, of course, it's the Ravenclaw. Yeah. It's Cho's friend, who's the one who like caves, yeah. but it explicitly says that her her mother works for the ministry, yeah. and that that is the thing that makes it too difficult for her to sort of maintain this position of like sort of being a rebel within the schools because her mother is located within the ministry and she's like implicitly worried about mm-hmm. what that's going to do. Yeah. So you were yeah, totally right. Yeah, I was totally right. Is that right? Good job, past Hannah. Such a good reader. Such a good reader. Not as good as Marcel, but I'm working on it. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 9B of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are available at ohwitchplease.ca and on iTunes. Hey, even if you listen on our website, maybe you should throw us a rating or review on there anyway. Or just recommend us to a friend. That would be dope. Also, I just learned how to find international reviews on iTunes, so shouts out to Punwitch, Against Idleness and Mischief, Kathy Van Orton, Puff Pride, The Typeset, and Polka Dot Revival for all your kind international reviews. Check out our Tumblr, ohwitchplease.tumblr.com, curated by Jason Purcell. And don't forget to thank the many gods for our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Who had to do some actual real tech supporting this week, and we are extremely grateful for him. This episode comes out September 21st, and on September 26th at 4.30 p.m., we'll be doing a panel at the Edmonton Comic and Entertainment Expo with our dear friend and uh, covenmate, Neil Barnholden. Also, stay tuned for announcements about another future live event coming in January. The following is a complete list of the people we expect to see there, a.k.a. the people who have been tweeting at us. <clears throat> Escaletli, Adams, Cat Lady Pizza, Lou Mores, Deza Gradavel, Pewter Wolf 13, Leela Smash, Kalexcro, Ms. Megan, Karina Soros, Debekel, Caro Poparo, Is a Grapefruit, Short to the Point, L.M. Schechter, Surinoth, Emily Hoven, Andrew Bretz 001, Katerina Mary, Neil Politan, Ifia S, Proletarian Arts, Angry Care Bear, Whiteley Rose, Kristen Morin, Mar Shameless, which is my stage name, Mel Doglish, J. Kate B, Bridget Stemmler, Matt Domville, Basil, S.C. Huggins, Force of Nature, Bookish Spoonie, Trevor Chow Fraser, Debbie Kinsey, JB Baby Girl 18, T Vellanilla 4, Eli ZR England, and my apologies if that's supposed to be like a cool internet thing that I don't know how to internet. Like Eli- Eliza England? Yeah. Is it like a Jew thing? I'm not Semitic enough. Uh, quick side note Virginia Woof, an outlaw wife. Holly Dunn Design, Books Pieces, Frank Trick, Alex Mack, Broken Tape Deck, Terry Lee McGarry, Reach KL, Against Mischief, Marcella Gell, or Marcella Yell, Chelly Goaty, 
smaracuja or smaracuja, bookish crumbs, Niemel's winter, and Jess Miguel or Jess Megali. I mean, if you want us to pronounce it differently, you are so welcome to correct us via Twitter. We super appreciate Ifia S and SC Huggins for uh, letting us know how best to pronounce their Twitter handles. Also, thanks to Hannah for breaking up a bunch of these in actual like words so that I could read it properly. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Hannah. You're the best. You're very welcome. We also have a special message today on behalf of listener Alan Matley. The message is for Sarah, and the message is, Happy Birthday! <laughs> Alan would like to thank Sarah for introducing him to Witch Please, and we are likewise grateful. He says that listening to new episodes has become a beloved fortnightly tradition for them, which means that they are living their best possible lives. Happy birthday, Sarah, and thanks for being awesome. Here is an owl sound effect just for you. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will indeed be the live episode from Edmonton Expo, um, which you should probably come to if you can, but you'll be able to listen to it either way. But until then... Later, witches. Witches.